This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Ombudsman for U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services has one central focus of this year's annual report to Congress, reducing the backlog of immigration cases. As of March, there were nearly 5.2 million cases in the backlog, meaning cases sitting for longer than the target processing time. Some 8.5 million cases are there altogether. Even after hiring freezes ended and USCIS avoided furloughs during the pandemic, the agency still struggles to hire and train enough adjudicators to get through that stack of cases. The ombudsman held a call for public feedback last week. Federal News Network's Amelia Brust listened in, and she joins me now. Amelia, how bad is this backlog of immigration cases relative to, say, the historical norms? Well, as of March, the latest data that uh, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services shared was that the backlog was about 5.2 million cases. Now, compare that to March 2020, when the pandemic really ground everything to a halt, it was around 2.4 million cases. And it's kind of been a snowball effect of processing facilities, both domestically and abroad, being closed and employees unable to process the many paper files that come with immigration applications, courts being closed, immigration entry limits being imposed. And then even though a hiring freeze was lifted in 2020, USCIS had to stave off furloughs of its existing staff by making cuts to non-payroll related expenses. That's because USCIS, as people may or may not know, is about 97% funded by service fees. So if no one's getting immigration services, the agency isn't getting those fees. And do they need more people to get through this backlog and are they starting to hire them? They are, but it's not a fast process. The Ombudsman's Office said that in fiscal 2020, the average time it takes to onboard a new adjudicator, which are the people who process cases, was about 97 days to 118 days after the date a hiring decision was made. That said, Dan Renault, who is an associate director for the Department of Homeland Security, said that they hope to at least meet their hiring goals for this calendar year. We plan to hire more than 4,000 employees by the end of this calendar year. While the agency has already announced many promotions on USA Jobs, we also have many more announcements coming out. But we also know that staffing is only part of the solution. The agency also established new cycle time goals to guide the effort of the USCIS workforce. The new national cycle time goals are aggressive but achievable by the end of FY23. Cycle time is an internal management metric that's generally comparable to median processing time. As cycle times decrease, processing times will follow, and applicants and petitioners will get their decisions on cases more quickly. And that's Dan Renault of DHS. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Amelia Brust. And is there anything they can do to speed up things until they get those warm bodies in? So right now, they are leading more and more on digital services. USCIS has started doing a lot more video calls for immigrant interviews and naturalization ceremonies. And the Ombudsman's Office is really pushing for more ways for applicants to be able to check their documents and their immigration status online. And here's Dan Renault talking a little bit about that again. To mitigate the effects of backlog capture delay, USCIS has made efforts to reuse biometrics when possible. We've conducted interviews using video interviewing technology and applied creative solutions to ensure social distancing requirements are are honored. So even during the pandemic, we were able to, through using video interviews and reusing biometrics, 
we were able to continue to complete work while ensuring the safety of our staff and, and the public. Since June of 2020, we've conducted over 160,000 video facilitated interviews where the applicant is present at a USCIS facility but seated in a different office than the interviewing officer. All right. Sounds complicated. That was, again, Dan Renault of Homeland Security. And Amelia, one of the things that businesses have raised throughout this whole pandemic and what's going on with immigration is that the pandemic left a lot of visas, legal visas for foreign workers unused. Now, is USCIS offering those to more people? Can they even get them through fast enough, the people that are desired by employers? Right. So this is in reference to the annual limit on employment-based visas, which is currently about twice as high as it is in a normal fiscal year. And that's, again, because so many consulates and facilities weren't able to process them during the pandemic. And Doug Brand, who is senior advisor to the USCIS director, said they do want to use them all up by the end of this fiscal year on September 30th, and they're urging anyone who may be eligible for these visas to file their paperwork as quickly as possible. Here he is talking a little bit about that situation. Department of State currently estimates that the annual limit for employment-based immigrant visas for this fiscal year, FY 2022, will be approximately 280,000, which is double the typical annual total. And that's due to unused family-based visa numbers from FY 2021 falling across to the current fiscal year per how Congress set the system up decades ago. So as of mid-June, USCIS and the State Department have used significantly more visas by used, I mean, you know, approved cases than at the same point last fiscal year. And USCIS alone has, uh, has utilized more than twice as many visas on a weekly basis than, it, than we had at this point last fiscal year. And uh, USCIS has published an FAQ about how to apply for these surplus visas on their website. Now, um, one other point I want to mention is that during the Ombudsman's public call last week, um, officials did not answer any questions about people's personal immigration cases, but they did want to address a concern that many have had about the agency's earlier announcement that their Nebraska and Texas service centers would be transferring applications for adjustment of status for the I-485 visas. They were going to be transferring a lot of these cases to the National Benefit Center in Missouri. Now, again, the National Benefit Center is also struggling from staffing issues, and a lot of people are waiting on their cases to be processed. And in the meantime, a lot of people have actually submitted duplicate applications because they haven't gotten an answer yet. But uh, Doug Rand said uh, this kind of just clogs up the system further, and he wanted to try to reassure people that those cases are being processed, just maybe not as fast as people realize or would like to see them processed. We are moving cases as quickly as we can from the service centers, you know, onward to the National Benefit Center and the field offices as appropriate. We've moved tens of thousands of them already, and more movement should be seen uh, in the very near future. Um, I want to emphasize something that we've we've said before, and we'll say again, which is you know, filing an you know an, adi- an additional redundant I-485 is not something we want to encourage. It does not result in faster case processing for any individual. And it, and it taxes the whole system more. So it's a tough time to be USCIS. Anything else we need to know, Amelia? Well, the ombudsman will 
give its annual report to Congress on June 30th. And um, aside from addressing hiring needs and a more uh, technological solutions to immigrants' service needs, the Ombudsman is once again recommending that USCIS's fee-based funding structure get a serious overhaul. Federal News Network's Amelia Brust, thanks so much. Thank you. And be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? You I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her. I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there are so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think, my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that 
you get everything accomplished because you know that's what everybody's looking for the goals the metrics etc but i think as you mature and you go along you start to to your point you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young you know whenever you're a young adult and you say you know i think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line and so over time i really began to i i think see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards, two different administrations. You founded your own company, Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and, and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office. And lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of the Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi historical to current, uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I, I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. You made it here. Finally, checked out of office to check into the sweet views of that place you've always wanted to go. You know the one. It's nice. Even the kids like it. This place is so cool. And they never like it. Mom, can we go to the pool? Look at that. Not even asking for the Wi-Fi. When you're with Amex, it's not if it's going to happen, but when. American Express. Don't live life without it. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.